Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is December the 30th, 2021. Some of you will be pleased to know, and uh, it doesn't require a sophisticated mathematician to figure this one out. There are only two days left of 2021, so we're at the end of one year and the beginning of another. Many of you will be making New Year resolutions, things to do in the new year. There was a wonderful piece in The uh, Onion uh, this morning uh, about idiotic New Year's resolutions you'll never actually keep. I was somewhat amused. Uh, one is to descend Mount Everest, and another was to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, the act of descending or climbing, of mountain climbing, of course, epitomizes our resolutions, things to do. They're always metaphorically or otherwise like a mountain, things to conquer. Uh, memorize, memorize the Bible, um, which is quite tough, although I'm sure there are those of you who already know it off by heart. Um, improving your life in any capacity that suggests that our lives aren't perfect. Uh, the Onion comments widely acknowledged to be completely impossible. Um, be more confident. Uh, you know you'll never do that, the Onion tells us, you dumb loser. We can't begin again. In other words, we're saddled with who we are, and we're always miserable, dumb losers. Uh, beginnings and endings, perhaps not quite as separate as we like to think they are. Um, and the final one in this idiotic New Year's resolutions on the Onion was just make it through till next year. And of course, next year, the end of 2022, the beginning of 2023, we'll be talking about climbing mountains again and reinventing ourselves, new beginnings, beginners. And that's the subject of our talk today, our conversation with the author Tom Vanderbilt, who's based in Madison, New Jersey. His book, Beginners, it has two separate subtitles, I guess, for the UK and the US editions. Uh, the uh, one is the joy uh, and transformative power of lifelong learning. And the other is just the curious power of lifelong learning. I don't know what happened to the joy. Uh, maybe that was never there. Uh, the book came out last year, last January. Uh, it was a big hit, got great reviews, New York Times, New Yorker and so on. And the book is just out in paperback. And as I said, Tom is joining me uh, from his home in Madison, New Jersey. Tom, have you got any... Uh, resolutions for 2022 anything that you still need to learn or you've learned everything <laughs> now in the research book i mean i'm making a resolution to actually leave my house uh in 2022 <laughs> that would be a, that would be a start and if i could just interject with a, the, a note on those two subtitles um the one without joy in the subtitle is the english edition so we can, I don't know if we should read that as a... You mean England, 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 England yes, as opposed yes, to America. Joy may have just seemed like too much of an American concept. Yeah, you know, well, we Brits this. know that there's no joy in lifelong learning. It's a horrible yes. obligation, which Americans pretend to be happy with, but are often miserable. I've always thought that British people are uh, cheerful pessimists and American people are um, miserable optimists, but maybe you will um, uh, unconvince me of this, Tom. Uh, so, beginners, um, 
with or without the joy and the subtitle, the book is about beginning again. It's a, it's a book I think one should read either at the end of a bad year, which I think most people would agree 2021 is, or the beginning of a new year, 2022, with lots of hope perhaps reflected in the yellowness of the, the book cover. Yeah, and, and resolutions is a, is a great way to sort of launch into this, because I think, I mean, while, you know, I suppose people go back and forth on this, on the actual, apart from the onion, on the actual validity of having something like a New Year's resolution. I mean, the, the New Year is a, is a wonderful bookmarking sort of, uh, you know, it, it, it's a ideal starting point in some ways mentally and logistically. But, you know, I think I think one thing that happens with something like a resolution is the very act of making the resolution sort of forestalls the actual plunging into whatever that thing is you're trying to do. You sort of, you've sort of written it in your head. You, you're going to do it January 1st. January 1st comes along, suddenly you have to get back to work and you're sort of swept up with all these other things. And you find yet another way to put off that thing you were going to try. And this was, you know, my story in many ways for many years. There were all sorts of things, like a lot of people, I suppose, that I would sort of had in the back of my mind that, oh, I'd really like to get around to, I don't know, trying to learn guitar, for example, a very kind of cliched thing, but, you know, also a wonderful thing. So, uh, but, you know, I, I sort of had it on my list, but the act of putting on that on that list, just, I sort of guarded it like a, like a bit of treasure that I never actually got around to un unpacking. And it just sat there on this phantom list until one day, I mean, prompted, of course, by a book project, let's not be wrong about this, but um, I, I decided to actually try and learn a bunch of these things that had long uh, eluded me. It's interesting, Tom, that uh, this is a book project and many people's New Year's resolutions, particularly on a platform like LitHub, many people are watching this on LitHub, I hope many people, not just one or two, um, their resolution is to write a book. What advice would you give to beginners on on writing, you're a professional writer, so the act of writing beginners was not a beginning project for you. Yeah, I mean, well, wow, what a question! But you know, I, I mean, so many people, uh, the sort of joke among writers when you're doing something like a book signing and there's a long line of people waiting to get their book signed is people always want to tell you about the book they have in mind, or you know, I should write a book. And there's this cliche that everyone has a book in them, but I think you know. This is one of these things that, again, just the act of saying you want to do it or you're going to do it is is not enough. And I, my entire life, would have liked to write a novel. It's not something I've only done nonfiction. It's something during I've never the club, done. Tom, we're all in that. Especially, I think every nonfiction writer yeah. <laughs> likes to think that they could write a novel or likes to think that they that they have the ability. Although most of us acknowledge we don't to write a novel. Yeah, and and and, and I'm not sure honest, if that's reversed, by the way, with fiction writers whether they will want to write nonfiction. Probably not. I mean, it's it's a good point. I, I feel like I, you know maybe this is just hubris, but I feel like I actually could write fiction. The thing that always stops me, and, and this just gets down to sheer logistics. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a working writer, as you said. I need to, I have bills I have to pay. I just if someone were to to call me up and say, "Would you write a novel about X subject for X dollars?" I I, I think I would take on that that challenge and I, I would do it and I would hopefully do it in a manner that was, you know, at least sort of acceptable. But this idea of this uh, abstract, ambiguous fiction, this novel, this big thing hovering out there in my mind is another thing that I just sort of put in the, the locked drawer of my mind and, and never sort of get around to doing. So I, I think, you know, what, what 
so it raises the question, what does it take apart from needing money to do things like this? And I, I think one of the things is, is habit change, so, some sort of external or perhaps internal shock to the system that gets you out of your everyday life and suddenly opens new windows onto new possibilities. And for many people, the pandemic was precisely this. I mean, suddenly you, you could not leave your house. You were not going to work. You, you had this extra you know, hour and a half, perhaps, that you weren't commuting. You had new sorts of time in your life and a need to come up with new ways to entertain yourselves. And once, once Netflix, the charm of Netflix wore off, you know, what is that all there is to quote Peggy well, Lee? I, so, I, I know you got kids. I got a daughter. She never seems to run out of things to watch on her iPhone. I'm, I'm curious, <laughs> Tom, um, as the attraction of the habitual, when I was researching um, this interview, looking at some other interviews you've done, browsing through the book, I thought, I, I don't think he's mentioned in your, in your book, but I thought of the great Prussian philosopher, Immanuel Kant, um, perhaps the, the the giant of all of Western philosophy, uh, they say he was such a hib- habitual fellow. He li- he grew. He lived, I think, his whole life in Königsberg. That people would set their watches by his morning walk, morning or pre lunch walk. So he always walked at the same time in the same city throughout his life. In other words, what's so what's so bad about habit? Why are we? Being told, perhaps by writers like yourself, that it's healthy to break out of our habitual routines. I mean, yeah, I mean, habits are a wonderful organizing principle, and I, I live by them. If I, you know, I wake up every day at six o'clock. If I haven't written my, let's say, a thousand words a day by ten or eleven, uh, you know, I, I I cannot write in the afternoon. For example, talk talk about a serious habit. I am an entrenched morning productive person. The afternoon has to be for other things. I simply could not write something good. Is that why uh, you're willing to do interviews in the afternoon? Exactly. I say nice chats for that. Um, but uh, yeah, but the, the idea is, you know, how do you, how do you, you set up these strong strictures for yourselves? How do, how do you look beyond those? And, and of course, for many people, the, the big barrier is this notion of time. And because they feel like their, their lives are so constricted and so many obligations already, they simply could not find the time to pick up something like, let's just say chess. And I always use this example of, of the Queen's Gambit, one of those shows you probably watched during the pandemic on Netflix. Uh, the running time of that show is more than a sufficient amount of time to learn the basics and even a little bit of low level strategy of the game chess. So the, all the people saying they, they didn't have time to learn something like chess, you know, yet you had time to watch the show about chess. You know, it just sort of raises the question of, how much time we actually lose if i told my uh if i told my daughter that she'd be very angry and tell me that i was making her feel guilty uh is (laughs) is the point of your book uh in part tom beginners uh the joy i'm I'm using the american subtitle not taking the joy out the joy and transformative power of lifelong learning is it to get people off their butts and actually do something whether it's chess or singing or surfing or drawing yeah, but I, I would I wouldn't want guilt to be the operating factor there. I, re- I really would like to stress the joy because one of my things also is is not to, you know, you don't have to pick up some pursuit that actually is something that number one is is sort of socially uh, acceptable or would seem to be beneficial to you as a person or your career. I mean, I, I would say that anything you do which puts you into this framework of of learning and novelty and expanding your horizons, I mean, that's all going to have a positive uh, outcome. I don't want it to be like 
this idea of guilt because that that's just another one of these i think just you know negative thoughts that's going to create this this sort of chain of self-talk which is going to stop you from doing it and that and and i even had i mean this is something that happens when you do take up a number of things you start to feel a little bit guilty about the pursuits you're not pursuing uh if i can put it that way there's always something you're not doing Exactly. So, and this this raises another thing about uh, you know saying opportunity costs. There's a notion of sunk cost as well. And people say, well, I've I'm doing these lessons. I don't really like this thing, but I've already sunk so much time in it. Right? And I feel like it should be the thing I should learn. And so they sort of stick with it without the joy. And, and I would say at that point, you know, you really just have to cut your losses and walk away. And you should not feel obligated to to do this thing in your free time because after all, it is your free time. It's the one thing in your life you have. Right, and, and the, uh, we joked earlier about whether or not joy should be in the subtitle. Um, mm -hmm. What's always in the subtitle, whether it's the English or the American one, is lifelong learning. I looked up lifelong learning on Wikipedia, which knows everything, um, and they described it as an ongoing volunt voluntary and self-motivated pursuit of knowledge for either personal or professional reasons. It is important for an individual's competitiveness and employability but also enhances social inclusion, active citizenship, and personal development. I couldn't imagine anything, Tom, more off-putting than being socially <laughs> inclusive, being an active citizen, and personal development. Isn't there something joyless about lifelong learning? Yeah, as, as sort of a phrase, and I have several books on my uh, shelf back there that have the word lifelong learning, and they're essentially textbooks, and they are sort of deadly dull, and, and unfortunately they belong to a a group of people who are, you know, in, in theory, doing good work and altruistic work and, and trying to promote this idea. But it does come with this heavy dose of, you know, a vitamin supplement that you are taking that is that's <laughs> going to be really uh, good for you. And, you know, when I would say when I would read a phrase like social inclusion, that just gives me, yeah, it gives me sort of a cold chill. But to put it another way, I, I would say that in some ways was exactly going on in my project, although I, I would put it in just much more personal terms. I mean, when I started to try to learn to sing i got sort of tired of doing it by myself and i thought it was a little you know a little sterile so i thought well what can i do with this can i put this into the world in some way so i joined a, a choir which is a, you know one of the most sort of fundamental and popular Spiritual. forms of social and, and i and i didn't think that I, I didn't think of it of social inclusion but i'm I, what i did find was that i was meeting really interesting people that i probably wouldn't have met in other areas of life who were helping me i eventually was sort of helping some of them. And together we sort of made this wonderful project that had no, you know, sort of monetary aspect to it or no commercial prospect, just just getting together for the sheer, there's the word again, uh, joy of it. I mean, it wasn't always joyful. There was a lot of hard work and all that, but, um, but yeah. And just to remind Tom, uh, because I, I've obviously read the book, um, you not only read it, you wrote it. Just very briefly, describe what the book's about, because I, you, you haven't really done that yet. Uh, sure, Beginners, yeah, which is just out in paperback, Tom Vanderbilt's new book, uh, The Joy and Transformative Power of Lifelong Learning. When I, um, when I did my first uh, lower third to describe you, Tom, I called it The Beginners, but of course it's just beginners. There's no the in there. W what's the book about? I mean, basically, it stemmed from an experience I had being a, a new parent, a sort of a new parent at an, at an older age, let's say. And I, I found myself, you know, number one, that's a that's a very sort of beginner process. No, you can read all the books you want, but 
on day one, you are thrust into a world as, as you probably remember well, you know, that, that you're not particularly well equipped for. So, but then as my daughter began getting older, I found myself in this sort of teaching and, you know, pedagogical mode where I was, I was either the authority, the expert trying to teach her things, or I was taking her to all these classes so she could learn these other things from people that actually knew what they were doing. And I, it just led to this realization that here I was sort of preaching this gospel to her of, you know, well, it's, it's important to be well-rounded, to know many things, to try out many things, to not worry about performance as much as just you know, the experience of doing it. And meanwhile, as she was doing all these things, I was sort of sitting on my phone looking at looking at football scores, let's say. Um, I just felt like this moment of... American or British? Uh, British, actually, yeah. So, I Who mean, do you um, support? Uh Liverpool for no good reason. I mean, I have oh, no. Dear. Well, let's and move this... on. We don't want to talk about that. Go on. <laughs> um, anyway, so I found myself, you know, talking this talk, but not walking this walk. So I, I, I thought, well, what was what was actually I couldn't recall the last new thing I'd actually tried to pick up the last new skill. And when I looked at the reasons why it was down to those usual things of, well, I'm just too busy. But at, at, at a deeper level, there were issues of. Uh, perfectionism, uh, you know, worries that I wasn't going to be able to be any good at this thing. I would try that I would look foolish. This is something that is very hard for a, a middle-aged adult to be essentially in life is, is a novice. It's a very uncomfortable situation. People are bad at being novices. So, what's Do you think that middle-aged people are, are worse at being novices than young or old people? Is there something particularly problematic? I don't know, you know, middle age is obviously a subjective term, but, um, uh, I don't know if Americans ever consider themselves old, but is there something age-related in terms of thinking of oneself as a beginner? Perhaps the older one gets, the more comfortable one becomes with being a beginner. And there's this middle period where we're all very awkward about it. Yeah, I, I would think that just that period I was in, you know, it's, it's sort of taken to be the peak of, of your career of professional competence. That, that, that would be an unusual time to suddenly pick up something at which you're going to, you know, do a lot of, do a lot of failing at. I mean, I'm sure it's an, it's an affliction that, I mean, even, even with children, it's the, that beginner notion begins to fade away a little bit, that, that fearless uh, willingness to take on the new. And I mean, this, this starts to change even in middle and high school, where suddenly you see this, this phenomenon with, with children's sports, you know, suddenly just deciding they're not good enough, losing the joy part of it. How old and, is and, your daughter right now? Uh, she's 12. Yeah, well, I can tell you one thing, Tom. The older she gets, the more aware of a bad parent you'll become. The idea of, um, of, of per perfecting parenthood is, is delusional. So be ready for that. Prepare yourself yeah, for failure. I mean, we always like to think <laughs> we're good parents or we're trying to be good parents. But the older the children become, the more inadequate it's self-evident that we are as parents. Anyway, that's enough of me. We are talking <laughs> with Tom Vanderbilt, the author of Beginners, The Joy and Transformative Power of Lifelong Learning. That's the American subtitle. The British one doesn't have joy in it. Um, it's the book that's just come out in paperback. I don't know if it was a bestseller. It was a near bestseller, acclaimed and fascinating book about beginning. Um, Tom, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back uh, afterwards to talk about some of the more specific um, areas that you began again in, in the book, chess, singing, and so on. So stay with us, everyone. We'll see you in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. 
I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back. We are talking with Tom Vanderbilt, the author of Beginners. He's uh, talking to us from Madison, New Jersey, his home. Uh, Tom is the author, as I said, of, uh, of Beginners, uh, uh, the Joy and Transformative Power of Lifelong Learning. It's just out in paperback. Tom, uh, you begin the book with chess. Uh, why chess? What's such a, what was so interesting about chess as an activity for you to learn, to, to think about in, in, in terms of beginning? Well, it was, it was something that my daughter actually, uh, sort of like many children, you know, saw this game and, and wanted to play. And I, you know, always wanting to be the authoritative father, you know, was sort of had to admit to her, I didn't actually know how. And uh, so I, I, you know, that was a, a major, you know, uh, motivation for me. And uh, although I, when I tried to sort of get into the game, I, I found myself not making much progress and struggling a little bit. So I then thought, well, I'll have her take chess lessons. She, she seemed to want to learn this game. And I, I had definitely sort of drank the Kool-Aid in terms of this, this notion that's out there that, that chess is something that's, you know, sort of intellectual, you know, for, for smart people and that, that it will, it will, it will, it's, a, it's a good thing for kids to learn. It helps their scholarly performance and all this stuff. So, I mean, I wasn't going to push it too hard, but if she wanted to do it. So I hired this coach and I thought, you know, well, this, here's, here's this golden opportunity, you know, to, to put this thing into practice that I was talking about. Why don't I take lessons alongside her? We can both be beginners at the same time. We've got about 40 years in between us, but let's see how it goes. And um, and so, yeah, and chess had been something in, that I was a little bit haunted by. You know, I, I would sort of, you know, see a board somewhere and think, oh, yeah, I'd sort of like to play that. It seems intriguing. But again, you know, I don't have the time. I'll never be any good. That, that's a waste of time. I have to focus on my career, et cetera. So um, I finally got into it, uh, you know, a few years ago. 
It reminded me, yeah, you began with chess. Um, it reminded me of Solzhenitsyn's book on Lenin, Lenin in Zurich, in which Solzhenitsyn suggests, I'm not sure how anecdotal this is or symbolic or moral or whatever, that Lenin gave up chess because of the revolution to dedicate himself to the Russian revolution, which of course he <laughs> accomplished. And, and chess is very much a game about power. We did a show earlier this year with the journalist Max Chafkin, who's written a wonderful book, a biography of Peter Thiel, an extremely good chess player, a man who's also obsessed with power. Um, what is it about chess and power that's so intriguing? Do you think learning chess, Tom, teaches you about power and how to win? I mean, I suppose, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the more I sort of... I mean that that was the old that was a dynamic that you certainly saw in someone like uh, Kasparov, who he was a very you know sort of a, emotionally uh, imposing. But figure, it is a, right? yeah, you you mentioned that, but is it there is something deeply, and I use this word carefully, Machiavellian about chess. It's about power. It's about domination. Yeah, although you know we're we're all sort of working in a new world now in which any one of the world's top chess players could be defeated by, you know, the algorithm on my, on my smartphone. So it's sort of as reset, you know, yes, there's power, but it's, it's intra-human power. And we're all have to be sort of, you know, a lot more humbled by, uh, you know, the creation of artificial intelligence. But um, I mean, for, yeah, I, it definitely is. And there, there are moments when I've been defeated where I just felt defeated by just brute strength. I mean, on the, on the flip side, there is sort of a, a lovely, or there can be, you know, sort of a lovely art, to it, there, there are moments of beauty, one could even argue, and it, it's like anything. There's nothing, to... yeah, I mean, power is beautiful if it's achieved or thought of in uh, yeah, original, and, I mean, what's... coherent terms. I mean, there, there's a wonderful purity also to chess, you know, it's, the, it's the, one of the few games that there are no, there's no element of luck right. whatsoever, whatsoever. It's all very transparent, it's in front of you. You sort of get out of it exactly what you put into it, which, you know, and to get a lot out of it, you need to put a lot into it. I'm talking about just playing, studying, deliberate practice. Uh, you know, I, I have no, I don't have the, the willpower or the time to become, you know, sort of a, a great player or even even a, even a very good player. I'm just, you know, sort of what they call a patser in the chess world. But but I, I, I derive a lot of enjoyment from it. And it has sort of, you know, opened new windows in my life, and I can, I can watch something like the recent uh, World Championship that Magnus Carlsen successfully defended, and actually understand a lot of what's going on. And and it's just you know, whereas before I would have just walked by in, in, in stupefied ignorance and and thought you know. So I, another another thing about learning new skills is it's just that beyond the the, the fact of doing them, it, it just puts you in this other world where people are doing them, and and, and, and sort of opens new ways to think about the world, uh, new ways to talk about. Is it in a way, Tom, our, our attempt, our middle age or older attempt to return to childhood? There's a kind of cult of the child about your book. Uh, you 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 begin on beginners because uh, of your daughter. You begin the book um, being beaten soundly at chess by a six or an eight year old. Um, and it reminded me a little bit of, uh, speaking of uh, fiction, it reminded a little bit of, I don't know if you've read uh, Richard Powers' new book, Bewilderment. Um, I, I have not. I've read uh, many other of his books, but, but not. Yeah, it's one. a really interesting mm -hmm. book about the purity of, of childhood. Are we living in an age, and perhaps your book is a piece of this, 
um, where we're idealizing beginnings and childhood. Um, the Domini, I like to always put Rousseau in all my shows. Uh, Rousseau, of course, who kind of, as, as a philosopher, invented in the 18th century the idea and innocence of childhood. I mean, when it comes to learning, I mean, I think that is the thing I, I and many other people would idealize in, in children. And of course, we, we hold them up as these these sort of paragons and, and almost go over the top. And Yeah, that's what Powers does, I think, in his book. I don't know if he does it intentionally. Yeah, I mean, we almost ascribe too much, too much intelligence or too much capability when we ourselves are capable of a lot of the same things, but children have other advantages, which are more sort of lifestyle advantages about, about simply having a lot of time and and people that care for them and not having to go to work and all those fun things. But, um, but yeah, they, they are sort of this platonic uh, ideal of, of learning ability and, and uh, you know, the brains constructed in a way where, where all the entire world is just a set of new inputs and everything is a learning opportunity and failure is, is welcomed and expected. And the, the growth is just sort of off the charts. And there are certain ways a certain curse of the expert where, you know, it's, it's yeah. been done in inter interesting psychological puzzles where children will come up with a solution to some sort of laboratory experiment or game that adults were themselves not able to see because adults rely, and this kind of goes back to the discussion of habits, we, re we rely on what we know about the world already, which leaves us less equipped to look for yeah. novel or unusual uh, solutions to a problem. Yeah, so in a sense, your, your book is an attempt to return to childhood, to that innocence where we don't know something. And you describe it in your book. You say it's a very exciting thing to go to a new class or, or try singing or surfing or drawing when one doesn't know how to do it. It's it's a return. We we had a show with the Canadian writer Kamal Al-Salaili uh, on where we on why we go back to where we come from. It's an interesting book. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's called Return, Why We Go Back to Where We Come From. Uh, it was a big hit in Canada, less well-known in the United States. Is there that element, do you think, to your book and to this project, this, this need to return, to come back? I mean, I think for me, you know, perhaps, but a little bit a different, a different re uh, prefixed word, which would be sort of recharge. I mean, this, this, you, know, you sort of, for me, I was sort of hitting this sort of midpoint in my life and and wondering, you know, what what was still out there, what what did I, what what could I still accomplish? You know, was was it all over? Was the script, was the script fully uh, written? And I mean, this is an an important consideration. I, I've just been doing some research about the process of of aging for an article. And then there's some interesting research that, you know, if you, we basically age, uh, if you ask the average person how old they think they are, they, they give an average of 15 years younger. I mean, how, how old do you feel inside? The average person will say- I think the difference, years. if you asked an English, a 40 year old English person, <laughs> they would say 55. And if you asked a 40 year old <laughs> American, they would say 25. All right, so that, maybe, yeah, <laughs> again, the, the two cultures, uh, united by a common language, but, uh, or divided by a common language, but, um, but yeah, so I mean, for, for me, learn, you know, learning is, is something that does help kind of unlock this, 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 essentially this, this current of youthful energy. I mean, you know, we, 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 there's been a lot of research about, you know, exercise and nutrition regimes can actually, and, and I've just done a, a piece about this where I've had my blood and various fluids tested 
uh, for the, my epigenetic profile of what my uh, quote unquote biological age is. And it is in fact younger than my chronological age. And, and you know, I do think that, you know, continuing to learn new things, having this, what's called a growth mindset is, you know, instills this sense of optimism. And optimism is one of those things they find among these so-called super agers. These, these are not, you know, people that have, they have given up that see, that see it uh, as sort of a, a downward trajectory um, to the grave. You know, they, they think there's, they're still looking outward. I've met people in their eighties who are trying to pick up new pursuits and they, you know, why not if your, your brain and body are capable. So perhaps, you know, I, I don't know if I'm trying to go all the way back to childhood, but I, I do feel, I feel very young inside and in, in the sense that, you know, I, I well, you I, feel younger now having, having written, uh, well, beginners yeah. <laughs> than when you began the book, you're saying. And, and, and this is something that, you know, I, I think, you know, when you have a child, you can go two ways with this. You can either, you know, sort of become older seeming because you, you now you're a parent and you need to have this authority and you, it, it does sort of age you in a sense the, the parenting process, but you can also, you know, sort of try to tap into some of that energy of your child. And so when she wants to go, my daughter wants to go to something like a trampoline park. I never having been to a trampoline park in my life, I'm suddenly one of the few people over, let's say, 25 or something in this place that are that is on the trampoline fully risking you know various neck injuries what is your uh what is your your <laughs> wife or partner think of this i mean she i i do i would say i mean she she thinks it's it's good i i would say she's a little bit less um let's say experimental adventurous and this so she's a, more you know, she's more like emmanuel kant she we can um, <laughs> exactly when she has um, lunch you know what time it is um yeah, you're well known. You've written a number of best-selling books, uh, Taste in an Age of Endless Choice. You're also well known for a wonderful book, Traffic, Why We Drive the Way We Do. Does this improve our taste? Uh, in, in, to, to borrow um, from the, the subtitle of the book, uh, In an Age of Endless Choice, does it help us refine ourselves? Does, did you learn about yourself? I mean, as I said, you, you did singing and surfing and drawing and as well as chess did you learn that some of these were more suitable for you than others did you learn about yourself i i did and this is this is a process that that, that i think happens and goes back to what i said about not feeling guilty about leaving some things behind or pushing further with other things i think it's you know no you don't really know at the outset what the thing is that you're going to try to learn in, much in the same way as parenting. You, you can do all this research ahead of time, but until you're actually in it, you don't really know what the experience is going to be like. So there were some things I, I have taken to more readily, and I'm, I'm still doing quite a bit of, of singing, for example. I'm not doing as much drawing. I, I still, you know, once in a while will will you know dabble in it. But um, I mean, this, this gets to a point, uh, a point I try to make, which is that, and it also gets into habits, you know, a lot of us, the reason we don't do these things is because again we put it we put it on this mental checklist we put it in the drawer say i'm going to do this i'm going to look at i'm going to start researching it next week I've, i found that simply you know doing something like taking a class hiring a teacher you know making that uh, you know making that financial uh, you know commitment at, at base level it's just something that that was important for me to actually push forward with a lot of these things i, I could sit here all day long and say i'd really like to to build a stone wall or learn to do pottery but i'm just not going to you know, people have different personalities. For me, 
I, you know, my own habits will take over, which is entropy, which will, you know, I'll, I'll just read, I'll read What's about the most uh, inappropriate thing you could begin with, Tom. What are you completely unsuited to? Uh, that's a great question. I don't know. I mean, there were things I, I thought about doing uh, for descending the Mount Everest, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, mem memorizing the Bible, being I mean, more I, confident. Well, so one thing I, I thought about for the book that I didn't do was was improv theater, and I just I, I'm, a, I'm essentially a you know shy person, as many of us are introvert. I, I don't know that I would be able to think that quickly on the fly in front of people and and put myself into some other character situation. I mean that that would be you know. Well, you're a brave man. You've written the book, and it's a really good book and big success. The beginner, uh, not the beginners. It's called Beginners: <laughs> The Joy and Transformative Power of Lifelong Learning. You are talking to me, Tom. You don't need me telling you this from Madison, New Jersey. I don't know why you did surf. You need to come out here if you're going to be a surfer, but it's a California. But anyway, um, in yeah, addition to your... There. Sorry? There's do you have surfing there? there. Oh, we yeah, do, sure. but, but, yeah. And there aren't as many, there aren't as many sharks. No, I'm, I'm being facetious, but... Um, well, but you yes, could no, learn I'm, to be I'm... a shark catcher <laughs> or a shark killer. Uh, Tom, in addition to uh, the new book, uh, your new book, or at least new in paperback. What else should people be reading uh, at this end and beginning of times, end of 2021, beginning of 2022? Any other book suggestions? Um, I mean, I, I have many. I've, I'm just going with the things that are most immediately at reach on my desk. Um, but one thing I uh, like is uh, The Extended Mind by Annie Murphy Paul, which is sort of about this idea of uh, what's called embodied cognition, which is the idea that a lot of our thought processes are actually improved and enabled by, you know, engaging with other parts of, of your body or the world or the larger world. And, and the, the way this intersects with my project is I, you know, I was doing a lot of sort of physical skill learning. And I found that, you know, this is a fascinating thing to think about because in learning, a, in learning a skill, you actually have to leave your brain out of the equation in, in mm. many ways. And, and you can't sort of overthink things. You have to let your body sort of take over. Your mm. body really does assuming want to learn. Assuming you, ha you have a brain in the first place, right? Well, yeah, that, that's exactly that. So anyway, but, but it touches on many other interesting things. And um, let's see, another uh, Craig Taylor's New Yorkers. Um, I, I, up to oh, a year ago, that, I was, yeah. yeah, I was a life, uh, not a lifelong, but I was in New York for 25 years. So this, this book is just a wonderful, uh, you know, profile of many different characters that New York has. We and, did a book um, by I think Thomas DG on uh, New York, uh, mm -hmm. earlier this oh, yeah. year, which mm -hmm. is a good book also. So, and finally, and any fiction, Tom, you said you like right, reading fiction or you um, fancy yourself as a fiction writer, maybe one this, day. This seems like sort of pretentious, but it's uh, Gustave Flaubert's Sentimental Education, which I read when I was younger. And it, it is all, speaking about going back, this is all about sort of a young man's ambition uh, and, you know, in, in a professional or literary sense or, or many, but, but it's also wonderfully written and is sort of his classic. I mean, people say Madame Bovary also, but um, so I I'm, I'm, haven't started yet. I'm going to plunge back into this and sort of, uh, I'm a big, I'm a huge proponent of, of rereading. I, you know, my wife and I disagree on this and she always wants to move on to the next thing. And I, I think, yeah. 
I always think reading something that I'm, I'm reading it for the first time in, in a sense that either I've forgotten most of it or you're, I'm coming to it with a new set of eyes, all, all the things I've learned in intervening years, all the other things I've read. Uh, this is no longer the same book as it was. Flaubert, yeah. Um, we're all, of course, we're familiar with Flaubert's Parrot by uh, Julian Barnes and Flaubert mm -hmm. was the writer's writer. Uh, so, Tom Vanderbilt, congratulations on the paperback edition. Love to have you back on the show. You got a new project or uh, still beginning? Still out there looking looking for something. And, and Well, when you find something, come back on the show. Happy New Year, Tom, uh, for 2022. Don't, don't uh, descend Mount Everest or climb Mount Kilimanjaro, but I'm sure you'll do something very interesting, very interesting book and lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. Likewise, thank you, Andrew. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms. All major podcast platforms carry the Keenon show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keenon show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows, you might email me at a.keen at me.com, or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects, which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keenon. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community and I'll look forward to